Hey everybody, this is Mikey D. Welcome to my stoop. So I grew up in a small American town, and much like any other town around the country, we were surrounded by friends and family. We had our schools and churches, and local mom and pop shops. There was the local characters and criminals and busybodies, and we all kind of knew each other's business. And rather than gathering on the front porch, we gathered on our stoops. See, this little small town was hidden in a far-off corner of a giant city. And although it seems like an ancient age, my memories are quite clear. So sit back and let me tell you the tales of my days and my crazy times on those stoops of Atlantis. Runco presents the greatest hits of Walt Disney with original soundtrack recordings. There's Spoonful of Sugar. Jim Jiminy, Jim Jim Cherie from Mary Poppins. And everybody's favorite, Zippity Doo Dog. An ideal Christmas gift. Regularly $5.99. Special this Christmas, $3.99. My house was always filled with music. It could be my mom's Sinatra and big band beats, or my dad's country western or opera infusing the air with their diverse sensibilities, or me and my younger sister's Disney albums. In the early 70s, when I was like seven or eight, I was listening to stuff like this. For the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities, forget about your worries and your stress. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I want. And the tunes were fun and catchy, and I enjoyed singing along with them. But my older sisters were playing something else. It was diverse, musically complex, lyrically original, politically potent, and sometimes just plain fun. It was unique, powerful, and it would be the music that would tickle my ears, my imagination, and my soul, and mold me as a human. It would open my mind, my eyes, and my soul to new concepts and ideas. It was rock. Now, rock is a huge label. It would take decades for me to explore it, be educated in it, and discover subgenre by subgenre, band by band, song by song, just how huge of a map it takes to get lost in its wonders. And the adventure started the way it started for millions of devotees. Yeah, those early boy band songs where the Beatles led the invasion. My sister Donna would let me and my sister play some of her 45s on a little portable turntable that had been relegated to kids' music. This Beatles stuff, though, was fun. As a kid, I looked quite a bit like Paul McCartney, and my aunts and some teachers would call me by that moniker. And I loved it, and it wasn't long before I would don that fantasy avatar and pretend I was in the band, lip-syncing and air bass guitar playing along with the 45s. Then my sister and buds Chris and Jen joined the band, and we had our foursome. In fact, check out episode 14, The Funny Bunny Show, to see where we took that gig. We were the Beatles and the monkeys and the animals, but my young ears were picking up more vibes wafting around our house from my sister's stereo upstairs. I was about 10 years old. There was a voice and a piano and lyrics I was starting to sing along with. The album was Turnstiles. The artist was Billy Joel. I found myself needing to listen to the album, but I could only hear it when Donna played it. So I asked if I could listen. She said, yes, but 
only if she controlled the vinyl and the stereo equipment. Fair deal. And I would listen to it over and over. Then The Stranger came out, again, over and over, singing along until I knew every note, every lyric, and every beat of every song. Billy Joel was the first artist that I liked on my own. I had chosen him from the pantheon of artists. His songs were so singable, and they were like Lay's potato chips, one was never enough. If a song came on, there was no way to walk away until I'd faded to pure silence. The bag had to be emptied to the last crumb. This was the era of singer-songwriters and lovely ballads and mellow music. AM radio was earning its bread off them. And looking back, much of it was terrific, folks. You know, like Gordon Lightfoot, Ann Murray, Harry Chapin, The Carpenters, Jim Croce. All amazingly talented folk who wrote some damn good timeless tunes. But Billy Joel and another pretty good poet named Bruce, whose incredible lyrics were not quite sung with the same clarity of Billy, were rockers, not folkies. There was something else, a mysterious ingredient, this elusive alchemy that transmuted mere notes and words in their songs. Alchemy. It was alchemy, not mere music. Rock is alchemy. Hey, can you lend me a few bucks? Tonight, can you get us a ride? But there was so much more. This was the mid to late 70s and it was the golden age. My rock guru sister was educating me in the variety of sounds. Queen was huge in my house. Freddie's potent voice, mixing with the electric paints of May, Deacon, and Taylor, would create masterfully crafted oral paintings on canvases of vinyl. There were the rock gods like the Stones. I remember the first time Donna let me hear Star Star, which as an 11-year-old made me giggle with delight. Although I had to listen with headphones so my parents didn't hear Mick dropping all the F-bombs. And there were the kinks who taught me about transvestites and the who chilled my spine with their passionate anthems. Led Zepp in that iconic staircase. ACDC who, well, had big balls. And the Doors who helped me light the fire of my love of this music. kid with an imagination that needed little to launch it skyward like a glittering white's firework, prog rock spoke to me. This music was orchestrated fairy tales that took me on a wondrous adventure through epping forests, lands of giant hogweeds, and the terrible carpet crawlers. This music was for me. And I remember the day that Donna gave me permission to use a stereo if I promised to treat the stereo like a new car in the albums like Fine Crystal. Yes! I would use her headphones to get lost in mystical and trippy realms of Genesis. Yes, Procol Harum, and my favorite band of all time, Pink Floyd. It was an admixture in the concoction that fueled my need to write stories. It hardly seems to matter now. Then I heard this. When you're a kid, you want new, different, innovative. Devo was to music as Star Wars was to movies for me. It just fit me like a yellow vinyl glove. 
The songs were overflowing with energy, and the lyrics are goofy and fun. You know, are we not pins? Or I'm just a spud boy looking for a real tomato. And also really poignant with some cool dystopian sci-fi edges. God made man, but the monkeys applied the glue. That stuff's great. I ate it up big time. Guess I was 12 when I discovered Devo. It was the perfect age to transform me. I listened to that first album over and over, often with the headphones and singing out loud. I remember belting out good feeling. I had just about all I could take, you know, I can't take it no more. And my sister Debbie yelling out, okay, Mike, enough, I can't take any more either. Russell from my block, aka the Bloodmaster, had a piece of Mark Mothersbaugh's yellow vinyl jumpsuit. He snatched when it was tossed into the crowd at, I think, CBGB's, and it was shredded like a gazelle by a pack of hyenas. He let me hold it, and it was as if he had handed me a slice of the Shroud of Turin. It even had a little blood on it, Russ assumed from Mark's scraped knee during the show. The first album I ever bought with my own money was Devo's second, and still my favorite record, Duty Now for the Future. It's funny, I bought it from a small record shop in East Village. You know, remember, remember record shops? And when I raced home to lay that jewel on the turntable, I flipped upon slipping it from its sleeve. The vinyl had four deep scratches across it, as if a giant pissed off cat got to it first. Man, I was ticked. When I returned it to the shop, the owner acted as if for some bizarre, mysterious reason I did this myself. I want the record, why would I ruin it, I said. He begrudgingly exchanged it, and we opened the second album in the shop, and six broken slices of black plastic slipped from the sleeve. I was vindicated, and he was kind of embarrassed. Man, that order got messed up, he said to himself. He had only one copy left, and with a proverbial drum roll vibrating my soul, he opened it. And it was, thank the gods of rock, pristine. I became one and one with those spud boys. In high school, I had the name Devo Kid on my sweater. I got to see them in Central Park on a glorious 102 degree day when a lame magician and a band called WKGB opened for them under a rain of booze and beer bottles. I would try on flower pots and warts, trying to find that perfect Devo hat. And when I finally got my hands on one of those bright red energy domes at a concert at Radio City where we had fourth row seats, it would be the cause of ultra humiliation. Devo was to appear on Merv Griffin. So I sat in our ground floor apartment, donning the dome, waiting for them to start. When I heard a giggle, yeah, the object of my young affection had spotted me and was looking into my living room laughing. Life is a geek. I confess, I was one of those disco sucks kinds of guy. And when Rapper's Delight got into the brains of my friends Chris and Scott, I kind of felt betrayed. Nothing really against disco or rap as forms of entertainment. In, in fact, I grew to like a decent amount of it. But for me, the gods wielded these magical devices. Instruments. Instruments were hard to learn. Hell, I've been trying to grasp the guitar for ages. The people with the chops to have their way with these devices were placed on pedestals in my world. No instruments? Well, those genres that use drum machines and samples were great to dance to, but I couldn't don headphones and get lost in other worlds. I almost crossed a tenuous border in the 80s. Those early 80s you know, was an MTV time, and I was drawn into that colorful, digital, and heavy makeup vibes of New Wave. The rock purists at school were not on board. But for me, this was an exciting new kind of rock. 
Hell, these guys played instruments as well. Sure, they included a lot of digital sounds, but they were armed with the Fenders and Ibanezes and Yamahas and Ludwigs. Bands like the B-52s, Thompson Twins, Duran Duran, Ultravox, Madness, Wall of Voodoo, The Specials, Romeo Void, Temple Tutor, Tears for Fears, The Go-Go's, Depeche Mode, Human League, The Cure, The Cars, The Police. Yes, some were one-hit wonders, and others got huge. And I love them all. It was a golden age of rock, 1965 to 1985. We, those of us who were rock fans, saw it more as a religion. The musicians were all part of a great Mount Olympus. It was the era of albums with artwork and liner notes. Sometimes the vinyl came in other colors. Some albums had holograms or, or zippers on them, a real zipper. And the songs were linked into a grander tale, greater than the individual parts. Every new 12-inch vinyl disc of magic was a gospel, the gospels of rock. The places of worship varied from small temples like CBGB's or the Ritz to the amazing cathedrals like Madison Square Garden, whose air is still infused by the spirits of all those great shows that blessed its halls. But mostly, it was about listening to the radio. WNEW, PLJ, WAPP, that once did a commercial-free summer. They were the homes of the evangelists of our religion, letting the songs do the preaching. Vince Skelser, Richard Neer, Jim Monahan, Scott Soamuni, Carol Miller, Maria Molito, and Ken Dashow, whose smile in his voice has been my ongoing influence on how I try to speak this podcast. My memories are filled with the days of boredom, excitement, pangs of unrequited love, and just utter joy, all scored and underscored by rock on my stoops of Atlantis. This has been The Stoops of Atlantis with Mikey D. Stay tuned for future episodes as we journey back to that ancient mythical land that actually existed, East Harlem. And please join the Stoops of Atlantis Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, and subscribe on YouTube or iTunes. See you next time.